You know, when God saves a soul from spiritual death, all sorts of things begin to happen. All sorts of changes begin to take place. The ripple effects of that moment, you understand, are simply unstoppable. They are inevitable. They are unavoidable. Which makes total sense, doesn't it? To to go from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, it just makes sense that someone saved from spiritual death is going to have their lives changed. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That doesn't mean sinless perfection by any means, but that does mean serious transformation. That's inevitable. That's indisputable. That cannot be denied on biblical grounds. You see, when God saves a soul from spiritual death, when he regenerates a soul and makes them born again, he saves and delivers them from the inside out. And when that happens, all sorts of things begin to happen. Their cravings, their desires, their longings, their passions, their pleasures, their priorities, everything begins to change. When God awakens a soul from spiritual death, and again, don't misunderstand me, the change is painful and it is slow to be sure. But the change is real nevertheless. See, one of the things that the New Testament makes just so clear and unmistakable that on the long list of transformation that should happen in our lives, and perhaps even at the top of that list of transformation that we should see in our lives when God saves a soul from spiritual death, get this now, what we should see is love. Love is the proof. Love is the proof of life. Born again, children of God display the reality of their salvation through authentic love and care and affection for other people, and in particular, love and care and affection for the very people saved and sitting in their very local church. And we know that's true because John says that very thing in our text this morning, that the proof of life is love, that regeneration results in radical affection, That a life of self-denying, others-serving, Christ-imitating love is the undeniable evidence and proof that we have been awakened and saved by sovereign grace. You see, the reason why John brings this up in the first place is because there were some people who had been hanging around the church who weren't very loving at all. In fact, they were downright brutal and nasty and even dangerous, and the reason is, is because they were teachers, and by that I mean false teachers, a cadre of clever con men who caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation. But you see, like all good false teachers, they not only brought confusion to the church, they brought division to the church. They claimed this secret knowledge received from Christ to which only a special privileged few could gain access. And what that did, you understand, is that that polarized the body. It fractured the fellowship. Things got clicky and weird and suspicious and tense. And Paul gets wind of this garbage blowing through the church and like a mama bear protecting her cubs writes a letter in which he unfolds all the evidence of what it looks like when you actually have eternal life and what it looks like when you actually have eternal life is authentic love and care for the souls and needs of other people. That being born again results 
It displays itself in profound manifestations of love for our blood-bought comrades in the church. And where that does not happen, where we do not see that in our lives, we have every right to question if our salvation is authentic. And so, as is usually the case for the Apostle John, he's going to pull no punches. He will mince no words. Nothing he says will be covered with any sugar at all. But what he does say will be filled with love and concern from a pastor's heart who wants us to know the nature and the essence and meaning of what authentic love is. And I'll tell you, we need this. We really need this. Any Sunday is a great Sunday to preach on what it means to love one another, not only because we could get better at loving one another, but because you understand love is so central to the mission of the church, isn't it? Think about it this way. Love is the catalyst of a global mission of undaunted courage, which means if we don't first have love for one another, at the end of the day, there is no mission. So let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. Let's see what love really means. Let's see what hate really is. And let's see how love for one another is the proof of a soul that's been awakened and saved by sovereign grace. If you have your notes, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see two components. Two components of authentic, Christ-imitating love that you must consider as born-again children of God. Two components of authentic, Christ-imitating love that you must consider as born-again children of God. The first component is this. Number one, you must love despite its risks. You must love despite its risks. Now, one thing you cannot forget here is what John's agenda is in chapter 3. And his agenda is very clear. It is to help his people discern the difference between born-again children of God and children of the devil dead in sin. That's his agenda. And we know it's his agenda because he says that very thing in chapter 3, verse 10. Look what he says. He says, by this, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil, there it is, are obvious, he says. It's, it's totally easy to tell the difference between those two groups of people. Everyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So you see, there's a difference, and John calls it obvious. There's a profound, measurable, unmistakable difference between children of God and children of the evil one. And the difference is not at all because one group is inherently better than the other, but because children of God have been supernaturally born again by the living God. Because you understand that new birth miracle, that does something. That changes things. It opens eyes, it makes alive, and it saves someone from the inside out. And the results of that are inevitable and unavoidable and unstoppable. You see, because of the new birth miracle, there's just no way to go back and live how we did when we were children of the devil. And don't get me wrong, we've got our struggles and we've got our flaws, to be sure. But at the end of the day, we prove who our Father really is by living transformed lives that put Jesus Christ on display. The question, though, the question is, okay, well, if that's true, well, what is the tangible proof and evidence that we have, in fact, been born again by the living God? I mean, how can we tell? How can we tell that we truly, actually belong to God? And John says, it's obvious. Again, chapter 3, verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. 
Everyone who does not practice righteousness, nor the one who does not love his brother, they're not from God, John says. So there it is, children of God, imperfect though they are, they are righteous and loving. And the offspring of the evil one are not. See, the mutually occurring evidence that one has in fact been born again by God is righteousness and love. And you see, here's the thing. The mention of love there in verse 10 is what triggers the entirety of verses 11 through 18 into existence. Speaking of love, John says, we've got to talk about this. We've got to have a conversation about what love is and what it means and what it actually looks like in someone's life. And you see, the first thing John wants us to know is not merely that we should love, but that we should love despite its risks. Look at verses 11 and 12. Because this is the message which you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not like Cain, who was from the evil one, and who literally, the Greek text says, slaughtered his brother. And why did he slaughter him? Because his works were evil, and the works of his brother were righteous. And there it is. Love is on the table. We've got to have a conversation about this because apparently there's no way you can talk about who is and who is not born again without love entering into the conversation. Why? Because love is the proof. The proof of what? The proof of life. And notice that verse 11, John begins with the word for or because. And what that means is he's making an argument. What it means is he's answering a question that we haven't even asked yet. And the question is, what does love have anything to do with whether or not we are children of God? What's the connection? What, what do those have to do with one another? They have everything to do with one another. Why? What reason does John give? And that brings us first to the ancient message. The ancient message. Look again at verse 11. Okay, what does love have anything to do with being children of God or not? He answers, because, because this is the message which you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Literally, we should be loving one another. What does he mean by that? What does he mean from the beginning you heard that we were supposed to love? What is he saying here? I think he's saying from the very day you heard the gospel, from the very moment of your conversion, you heard that to be a Christian was a life of radical love and affection for other people. This has always been an inseparable component of the salvation message which you heard even before you were saved. Because think about this. Think about the salvation message about a God of love who in his love sent his beloved son to fulfill the most loving act in history. You understand that message automatically comes included with it that those who embrace this message take on a life of love for other people. We embody, in other words, the very love of the Savior who laid down his life for us. Because you understand, the New Testament is clear and unmistakable. We don't enter into, we, or I should put it this way, we enter into the Christian life not merely to improve our personal, private quality of life, although maybe that will happen. Rather, to get saved is to enter into a life lived for the supreme good and benefit of other people. See, this is not a you-centered faith. This is an others-centered faith 
that lives and does whatever it takes to do what's best for other people because that's exactly what love is. The question is, have you remembered that? Have you remembered that when you embraced Jesus Christ for salvation, you simultaneously embraced his mission for his church? And at the top of the list of the things in your mission for his church is to care for one another's spiritual growth as your top priority. Did you know that the gospel message that you embraced and you believed had a self-contained instructions for how to live the Christian life, which is to love one another with radical affection? But you see, here, here's the thing. That we see that John tells us that we should love, but you notice, you notice he doesn't actually define or explain what it means to love, does he? He doesn't actually explain it, and he doesn't have to, because that's already been done by Christ himself, hasn't it? You see, John is building upon the revolutionary teaching about love by Christ that he's assuming you already know. He's assuming you and I have already read John 13. We've already read John 15. He's assuming that you and I already know John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you should love one another even as I have loved you that you should love one another. Meaning what? Meaning not that we should love better than we did before, but that we should love one another as he has loved. Which means Jesus Christ has raised what love is to the highest standard that could possibly exist, which is himself. The question is how? How has he loved us? How has Jesus Christ loved us? And he already told us, didn't he? John 15, 13, no one. No one has greater love than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And what he meant was, that's what I did. That's what I did for you. I laid down my life for you. And why did he do that? To get our sins out of the way and bring us home to God. And you see, that's the issue. That's the issue right there. You see, loving others is so many different things, but at the end of the day, it is doing whatever it takes to do what's best for other people. And you see, what's best for other people, what's absolutely best for other people is what? It's God himself. Right? Can you think of, can you think of any greater good than God himself? Can you think of any greater gift that can be given than the gift of God himself? Therefore, love is you doing whatever it takes, even at great cost to yourselves, to help people see Jesus Christ, to help people see God for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. And since Christ himself is the paradigm of what authentic love is, we can totally tell that love is not some mushy, gushy sentimentalism that has no shape or definition. Rather, to love is to die. To die to self. To die to your plans. To die to your agenda. To die to your schedule if need be. 
You see, love, authentic love, is to die a thousand deaths a day if need be to get people what is best for them. And what is best for other people is the enjoyment of God himself. That is love. Now, what that looks like in actual real life, actual situations, we'll get there next week. But for now, it's simply enough to say that love is the is to make tangible for people the glory and beauty of God through word-centered, affectionate care for the needs of other people. That's love. Practically, it is to make tangible for people the glory and beauty of God. And in particular, for the people who are saved and sitting in this very church. As I thought about this issue, though, for me, this raises a couple questions that I think were helpful for me, and I think this is helpful for us to think about. Number one, how do we increase in our capacity to love other people? Love is not natural. This is profoundly supernatural. How do we increase in our love for one another? And number two, how do we increase in our skill in loving one another? Right? This, this does not come easy. This is, this is challenging. So capacity and skill. How do we love more, and how do we love better? That's the question. And number one, to increase our capacity in love for other people requires, get this, that we be simply overwhelmed by the love of God for us. That's what it takes. Knowing what God has done in his son to save us from destruction. You see, the more staggered we are by the sovereign love of the Father who chose us, who before time began inscribed our names into the Lamb's book of life, the more we are staggered by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in the place of rebels, the more we are staggered by the sovereign awakening miracle that opened our eyes to the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, the more we love and know the great links to which God had to go to save us from eternal woe and despair, the greater will be our capacity to love as we have been loved. In other words, what you need to know are the doctrines of grace. But number two, to be skilled in love requires that you be filled with the word. To be skilled in love, you must be filled with the word. A word-filled person is a love-filled person. And the reason is because the nature of God's word is that it is the means through which God reveals his own power and love, right? It's not just some book. It's not just a piece of literature. It is the instrument and mechanism through which God communicates and reveals and manifests his own power and presence in our lives. And so therefore, to be a word-filled person is to be a love-filled person. The more our souls are filled with truth, the more we will be filled with love and the more skill we will have in loving other people. Which means at the end of the day, the most loving service that you can render to another human being is to have your own soul drenched and satisfied in God through his word. Because that's going to translate into love for other people. But again, John's agenda here is not just that we should love. 
but that we should love despite the repercussions that it could bring to our lives, because it very well might bring repercussions. Just ask Abel. Which brings us to the ancient murder. The ancient murder, look at verse 12. This is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, not like him who slaughtered his brother. And why did he slaughter him? Because his works were evil and the works of his brother were righteous. Now that's, that's surprising, isn't it? That, that John goes from a command to love automatically to when Cain killed Abel. Isn't that interesting? And, and you remember that, right? Genesis chapter 4, the first murder in human history. The question is, what does one thing have to do with the other? And the answer is not merely that Cain killing Abel is the example of what not to do, which is totally obvious. You shouldn't kill your family members. That's obvious. Rather, the point, get this now, it's very, very important. The point is that Cain killing Abel represents what will happen to you if you live a righteous life for the glory of Christ, no matter how loving or compassionate you may be. Because think about John's context. Verse 10, John says that born-again children of God are righteous and they are loving. Righteous and love. But verse 12, look at the end of verse 12. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because his works were evil and the works of his brother were righteous. The point is, yes, yes, we should love one another with radical affection. Yes, we should lay down our lives for other people. But just be warned, love doesn't necessarily solve all your problems. Love is not the magic bullet that automatically makes you everybody's buddy. Because as born again children of God, you were called to be loving and to be righteous. And being righteous, you understand, puts a price on your head and a target on your chest. Cain couldn't stand that his brother was righteous. And neither can the sons of Cain. That's how exactly how they feel about you. Which is exactly why John says what he does in verse 13. Here now is the urgent warning. The urgent warning. Look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Because they will. And they do. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by this. And, and think about the scene. Abel didn't say anything. He didn't gloat over his brother. He didn't exalt himself over his brother. All he had to do was love his God and be righteous. And that was enough to get him killed. His righteous life provoked his unrighteous brother to murderous rage. You see, we have to keep in mind that the sheer fact that we exist is just too much for the world. It's too much. Just our very existence is an irritant to the world. They know we're here. They know we're meeting today. And they don't like it. See, we're the fly buzzing in the room. The splinter under the skin, the alarm going off constantly in the distance. Or to put it in more biblical terms, we are the light of the world and we are the salt of the earth. Or at least we should be. See, the point is we must love despite its risks. Or more precisely, we must be loving and be righteous, knowing that living like this, no matter how loving we are, it is going to cost us, and it's going to cost us big time. 
And Paul was really clear about this, wasn't he? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is going to happen. Paul knew it. Jesus knew it. The apostles knew it. That teacher in Virginia who just this week lost his job because he told a school board at a meeting that he couldn't in good conscience teach transgender sex education. Got fired for that. He didn't tell the students. He told the board that. It's done. He knows. And every born-again child of God knows that the very righteousness and love which proves that our salvation is authentic is going to get you in trouble. So don't be surprised, John says, if the sons of Cain hate your guts, because they will. And by the way, they already do. So the question is, the question is, do you see any of this in your life? Righteousness and love, which is kind of another way of asking, do you see any sort of hostility in your life from the world for being righteous and being loving? Are you, are you living a righteous life? Which means, are you living for the glory of God in even the most private, secret, secluded moments of your life? Are you a loving person? Meaning, do you, lived with, do you live with profound intentionality, seeking to make others glad in God? Because righteousness and love, righteousness and love, that is the proof that we have been saved and awakened by sovereign grace. Which brings us to the second. A second component of authentic Christ imitating love. We must consider as born again children of God, number two, you must love knowing its true meaning. You must love knowing its true meaning. Because being in the midst of a sexual revolution, which is exactly what we're in, there is a commonly heard phrase that's frequently heard, frequently thrown around. It's in signs in people's yards and t-shirts that people wear, bumper stickers that people have in the back of their cars, and it's the saying, love is love, right? Love is love, meaning what? Well, replace the word love with apples, and it will, an apple is an apple. No matter how you slice it, an apple is an apple. No matter the form, the appearance, the shape of the apple, apple is still an apple. And in the same way, love is love, which I think means any love is authentic, no matter to whom it is given or how it's expressed. The sexual gender and identity of the two people in question, or as is now the case, the two or more people in question, is irrelevant because love is love. And that would be true. That would be totally true if you define love as the unrestrained indulgence of your appetites and doing whatever it is you want to do so long as there is consent. But you and I both know that when it comes to defining what love is, the Bible wants to weigh in on that conversation. The Bible has something to say about this. The Bible has, put it this way, an insanely, infinitely intense, vested interest in defining what love is. Why? Because, because love gets to the heart, the very heart of what it means for God to be God. Love gets to the very heart of what it means to be sons and daughters of God. 
And therefore, in verses 14 through 16, believe it or not, John gives us a condensed theology of love, what it is, what it means, and when it's done well, when it's done correctly, how it puts Jesus Christ on display. Look at verses 14 through 16. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. The one who does not love is abiding in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we have come to know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now again, don't forget what John's doing here. His entire agenda in chapter 3 is to help his people and us discern the difference between born-again children of God and children of the devil dead in sin. Because there is a difference, a spiritually genetic difference at the very DNA of the soul. And his entire point in verses 11 through 18 is that at the top of the heap of the evidence we have that we have in fact been born again is if there is radical love and affection for other people. And in particular for the people in your very own local church. And John's got three things he wants to say about love. Three things he wants to say about love. Let's begin first with what love reveals. What love reveals, look at verse 14. He says, we know, we know this, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love is abiding in death. You see what John does here? He makes two powerful, contrary statements that talk about the centrality of love in the Christian life. Statement number one, look what he says. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. Did you catch what John just said? Because, did you follow his logic? Because we love the brothers. Who are the brothers? Who is that? The brothers Grimm? The Wright brothers, the Marx brothers, the Doobie brothers. You know who that is. You know exactly who this is. Brothers is code for church, isn't it? Our spiritual family adopted by the Father through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. You understand, even though we don't look a lot alike, and we don't have the same background, maybe even the same ethnicity, the same last name, you understand you and I are connected. You and I are connected at the deepest possible level that could possibly exist. Why? Because what are we? Children of God, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, fellow heirs and citizens of the kingdom. And what that does is make us family. Spiritual family linked together by common faith and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they say, don't they, blood is thicker than water? And that's true, unless you're talking about the waters of baptism, which point to our faith in Christ. And John says, because we love one another, because we love, assuming that we do, well, that reveals something staggering and profound. What? What does it reveal? If we love one another, what does it reveal? Look what he says. We know that we have passed out of death 
into life because we love the brothers. What is he saying? He's saying, because we love one another specifically and particularly, that is the proof that our salvation is not a hoax, but authentic and real. That's his point. Our love is the proof of life. That regeneration results in radical affection. That self-denying, others-serving, Christ-imitating love is the undeniable evidence and proof that we have been saved and awakened by sovereign grace. And look, look at the dramatic language that John uses to describe our salvation. We have passed out of death into life. That's shocking language, isn't it? Because no one comes back from the dead. Other than Christ, no one raises from the tomb. But you see, that's exactly the point. He describes our salvation in the most supernatural terms possible to illustrate the fact that when someone gets saved, it's like a resurrection of the very soul. And when that happens, the change and transformation is obvious and profound. There is a remarkable difference between a corpse and a conscious being living their lives. Equally radical is the difference between children of God and children of the devil. And the difference is in truth-speaking, burden-bearing, Christ-imitating, life-sacrificing love for blood-bought family in your local church. That's the difference. I mean, you understand John's point. He's not saying that loving one another gets us saved from spiritual death. He's saying that loving one another is the evidence that we have already been saved from spiritual death. Love is the proof of life. Love is the pulse of a soul that's been awakened and saved by sovereign grace. The question is, do you, do you see this in your life? I know it's a loaded question. Those are, those are the only questions I know how to ask. Loaded questions. Do you see that in your life? And what I mean is, do, do you own the spiritual health and growth of other people in your local church as your top priority? Do you feel a sense of affection and responsibility for one another's holiness and perseverance? Put it this way, do you feel the weight of the fact that our sanctification and our perseverance in faith firm until the end is a community service project. I don't make it to the end without you. You don't make it to the end without me. Because that's what the Bible has in mind when it talks about loving one another, ownership of one another's spiritual growth. You see, this is what makes a church. All, all sort of the grandiose ideas we have about oh, what would be just the, the perfect church to belong to this is it. I mean, of course, preaching the word, godly elders, sound doctrine, a Sunday meeting where we worship to, together, all that, all that too. But you understand also that a healthy church is made up of 10,000 intentional moments a week outside of Sunday morning where we care for one another's spiritual growth and health and sanctification. That's why small groups are so crucial to our church. Because, because those are the, 
That's the place where you build these kinds of relationships. And here we call them redemptive relationships. And all that means, all a redemptive relationship is, is people in need of change, helping people in need of change. That's the kind of stuff John's talking about when he talks about loving others. But, but there's another side. There's another side to what he just said. You see, if authentic love and care for others reveals that we have been saved from spiritual death, the follow-up question is, okay, well, what does it say about a person who does not love and care for other people? What, what does that say? John tells us. Look at the end of verse 14. This is a statement number two. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. On the other hand, it makes it absolutely clear that the one who does not love is abiding in death. In other words, they prove by their unlove that they're still a son of Cain. And look at John's jarring language. The one who doesn't love abides in death. They abide in death. Meaning what? Meaning they are a corpse with a pulse. I mean, they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. They can see with their physical, physical eyes just fine but they wander around in spiritual darkness and blindness. In other words, who John is describing here is an unbeliever who needs to be saved. And we know he's describing an unbeliever because in the very next verse, he turns up the heat and he talks about the person who does not love and he, he says, well, actually, to not love means that you hate people and that isn't great. Look what he says in verse 15. We get to what hate implies. What hate implies. Brace yourselves now. Brace yourselves. Having just described the person who does not love other people, listen to what he says. Everyone who hates his brother is anthropakanos, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, the person who doesn't love and the person who hates are the exact same person. And, and you remember, right, why John's got to be so blunt about this. It's not, it's not that he's trying to be a jerk, but he, but he does have to be precise. These wolves in grandma's clothing who snuck into the church, and they, they bragged about their mystical, incredible experiences with God, and yet they treated people like absolute garbage. They fostered selfish divisive, cliquish behavior, and people got swept up into this us versus M, them kind of hostility. And John here is forced to use the serrated edge of truth that cuts to the bone and says, no, no, that doesn't work because if you don't love someone, you hate them. What does John say about people who hate? Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know, we all know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, you can, you can hear the echo back to Cain, right? Cain hated his brother. He's, he was a murderer. He was not a righteous man. And in the same way, if you don't love someone, you hate them. If you hate them, that makes you a murderer. And if that's who you are, John says, you are a son of Cain. And you don't actually have eternal life. Now, there's a lot to wrestle with there. That's a pretty sharp blade, <laughs> We've got to make sure we know exactly who John is describing and who he's not describing. For instance, what does it mean to hate someone? And furthermore, why is hatred the same as murder? What is John after here? Well, think about it. Love is the opposite of hate, which makes sense, right? 
But you see, if love, according to the Bible, is affectionate sacrifice for other people, and it is, if love is you finding your highest joy in helping other people find their highest joy in Jesus, and it is, if love is you doing whatever it takes for others, no matter the cost to you, hate is to do whatever it takes to do its best for you at great cost to them. Hatred, you understand, is inherently parasitic. This is the great parasite sin. It's totally consumed with self. Self-glory. Self-righteousness. Self-pleasure. Self-focus. Me-time. It is profoundly concerned with one's own pleasure and enjoyment at the expense or exclusion of other people. I mean, you realize hatred is not only verbal and physical abuse, which, by the way, if any of that is going on in your home right now, or anything like that in your home that you know desperately needs to change, I just want you to know that in Christ and in Christ alone, there is hope for you. That that doesn't have to be the way you, you finish this life out with that going on in your home. It doesn't have to stay that way. Because Christ is in the very business of changing people's lives, changing their families, transforming their very homes. And so I just want you to know, if you need help this morning, right after service, Steve, one of our elders, and his wife Judy will be right up front, to my left, your right, and they will be there to help you and encourage you and pray with you and give you Christ-exalting hope and encouragement. We want to we help you. We want to be there for you. But you see, hatred, ugly those, though, though those things are, hatred is not only those things. Rather, at the end of the day, and if you've got your notes, this is in there. Hatred, get this, hatred is a need-ignoring, self-exalting, risk-avoiding, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting person whose primary concern is their own private comfort and convenience, no matter the cost or expense to other people. That's hatred. That, that's, that's a murderer. That's a spiritual serial killer. I'll say it again, hatred is a need-ignoring, self-exalting, risk-avoiding, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting person whose primary concern is their own private comfort and convenience at the expense of other people. But again, this raises the question, why, why, is, why are hate and murder the exact same thing? Why are these the same thing in God's estimation? And the reason is, is because they have a connecting tissue. They have the same goals. They want the same things. Hatred and murder wants the non-existence of somebody else. It's that that person gets in the way of what we think will make us happy. Like Cain, that person is a threat and an obstacle to our personal happiness and glory and agenda and plans, and in the end, our private little kingdoms that we build for our lives. Because you understand, murder is in the heart before murder is in the hand. And you see, spiritual murderers, they, they ignore people's needs. They exalt themselves. They avoid risks. They keep a record of wrongs. They hold on to grudges. 
They insulate themselves from people's problems and messy lives. They neglect the bride of Christ and treat it as optional. They sit back in arm-folded critique of the things they don't like when they could be investing in people's lives and changing people's lives. That is murder, spiritually speaking. That's practically what it looks like to hate other people. The loaded question, the other loaded question of the morning is, do you see any of that in your life? Any risk-avoiding, self-exalting, need-ignoring, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting. What we have to understand, though, is who John is not talking about. Because we can, it doesn't, it doesn't take anyone very long to dig around in their own heart and find something on that list, find something of which we're guilty. But who is John not describing here? You see, he, he, he's not talking about, the issue is not that people, the issue is not that we never struggle to love other people. The issue is not that we never struggle with bitterness or that we never struggle with anger. That's not his issue. His concern is not people who are frustrated over their selfish hearts and they just want to grow in loving other people and they just need help. He's not talking about those people. He's not calling them murderers. Rather, who he has in mind are people with habits of hate and patterns of pride that they knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. He means people who can ignore needs and avoid risks, and hold grudges, and be bitter, and make no effort to care for the spiritual needs and growth of other people in the body, and feel perfectly content with all of their excuses. That's who John's talking about. That is a spiritual murderer. And the problem is, the problem is, verse 15, you know, you know, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, despite whatever this person claims, they're not actually a believer. So the point is, John's point is, born-again children of God, with all their faults, with all their flaws, with all their failures to love people as they ought, at the end of the day, they still do love. Not great, but they do love. So here's the question. As you, as you venture into a new week, and, and you get a, Monday serves as sort of a do-over for you, here's some questions to think about as you enter into a new week. The question is, what, what needs of others can you meet this week? What, what burdens of other people can you meet this week? Can you carry this week? What risks can you take for the good of others this week? What grudges can you give up to the Lord? What wrongs against you can you nail to the cross? Where? Where is the messy life and the struggling saint with whom I could walk down the deepest, darkest paths of their lives? Who, who in the church can I have over for coffee and just find out how they're doing and read a psalm together and just see how I can encourage their souls. 
In other words, how can I make tangible the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ this week? Because speaking of the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, and to be totally honest, the greatest act of love in history that brings us finally to what love truly means. What love truly means in verse 16. I'm almost done. Look at the text. John says, by this, by this we have come to know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So you see it, right? How this verse is a head-on collision with the last one. Both verse 15 and verse 16 are splattered with blood, but in different ways. Verse 15 is the blood of hatred and murder. This verse is the blood and love of God the Son who loved us. Because notice very carefully the grammar of the text. By this. By this. This one thing right here. We have come to know love. And literally the Greek text says, The love. The love. We know the love, he says. Meaning what? Meaning we know the essence of love. We know the very definition of love. We know the greatest act of love in human history, which is what? And I know you know the answer, but pretend like you don't. Marvel at the text. By this we have come to know the love. Here it is. That he laid down his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So many. So many noble, commendable, sacrificial acts committed in human history. This one gets the prize. This one reigns supreme. Nothing compares to this. Nothing is even remotely close to this. Why? Because this is the greatest display of love in human history. This is the God who became a man, who took the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. And notice the verb that John uses there. Look very carefully. He laid down his life. Think about that. He could have used any number of verbs that would have been just fine. He died. He suffered, was crucified, handed over, given over. But in saying he laid down his life highlights the willing self-sacrificial nature of his death, doesn't it? You understand his life was not taken from him, it was given by him. This was not a suicide mission, this was a salvation mission. He was not a helpless victim in the clutches of his enemies, but a victorious king who died for his enemies. And speaking of that word for, he laid down his life for us. That's my favorite preposition in the Greek language. It's the Greek word huper. Huper, it literally means instead of. On behalf of. It literally means in the place of. John says he laid down his life in our place. He died in the place of the very people who deserved to die. You see, we knew that. We knew that coming in here, and we love that. And we do not take that for granted. It means everything to us. 
But what we may not have realized is that the greatest act of love in history comes loaded with application, doesn't it? You see, the death of Christ was not just our atonement. It's also our example. It wasn't just the payment for our sins. It's the act that sets the precedent for our very lives. He laid down his life in our place and we ought to lay down our lives on behalf of, in the place of, the brothers, the church. It's amazing that the greatest act of love in history by which we are saved comes with self-contained application for how to live the Christian life and how to live the Christian life is love. And by love, I mean death. Death to plans. Death to agenda. Death to preferences. Death to our kingdoms that you and I both want for our own lives. Love dies a thousand deaths a day if need be to do what's best for other people. And what's best for other people is Christ himself which means your greatest ministry in the church. The most important part of your mission to which you are called is to mediate and display the worth and beauty and value and sufficiency of Jesus Christ through affectionate word-centered counsel and comfort to one another, which means at the end of the day, if we don't have love, there is no mission. Christ, we are thankful that John does not use a dull knife. We're not particularly pleased always with the immediate pain, Lord, but it does cut and slice and reveal, and that's what's good for us. Thank you that surgery on the soul with the scalpel of the word is exactly what we need. And Oh, Lord, this issue especially cuts deep. This especially hurts, Lord, because we, Lord, we confess, we just confess, we all, we all see things in our hearts every single day, maybe every single hour, criticisms, harsh criticisms and, and, and critiques and feelings of self-accomplishment uh, and, and self-exaltation over other people and grudge holding and record keeping and, and lack of forgiveness and harsh responses and selfish bents. We see this. We see this in our lives and we come to you and we ask you for help. Oh, Messiah, you are insanely interested in changing people's lives. You are insanely interested in that. And we want that. Oh, Lord, we love. Help our unlove. We need, we need your grace to love in a way that puts you on display. Thank you, Christ, that you modeled that for us. And I pray that we would be filled, filled with 1 John 3.16, that that would just be the, it absorbed into the bloodstream of our soul and that would produce in us and translate out of us the kind of love that puts you on display. Thank you so much for this time together. In your mighty and matchless name.